I've got to say, I've had a holiday and coming back from that holiday, I can tell you with clarity that Christianity is a farce, a hoax and a sham. Christianity is a joke and not worth the paper that it is written on. If you treat Christianity as a rabbit's foot, a lucky charm, a get-out-of-hell-for-free token. Christianity will cost you everything. And because of this, many people are not prepared to pay the price. After all, who would be silly to bet on two birds in the bush when you've got one tightly clenched in your hand? And so, for most people, being a Christian is not for them. This is not about elitism or arrogance, but a statistical reality. As David Ratton spoke about it last week, most people in in Australia believe in the concept of a divine being. Many people in politics and in the media and across all walks of life will attest to a belief in God. But so many of them wash their hands of faith in the bowl and push belief to one side if it gets in their way. For many, faith in Jesus is like a third-grade trophy that sits dusty on the shelf or in a memento box, a reminder of a past action that means little for life right now. But what? What would it mean if following Jesus meant so much more? Let me pray. Jesus, as we take some time to delve into your word, your life-giving word, would you move amongst us? Would you brood over us? Would you be at work in us and through us? Would you quicken in us an openness to receive what you want to say to us today and the call that you place on our life? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as it was mentioned earlier, um, Mary and I were away last week, and last week we had another David ask the question, who is Jesus to you? How you answer that question has a temporal and immediate effect and also eternal significance. It charts the course of your life, and day by day shapes and transforms it. And immediately after the Gospel of Mark um, uh, documents Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, uh, Jesus goes out of his way, as it were, to contradict the disciples' messianic expectations. Tradition, interpretation, and the context of Roman occupation saw the development of the Messiah for the Jewish people as a man of power, of strength, who would overturn the Roman Empire and restore the fortunes of the Jewish nation. Surrounding nations would serve Israel, and wealth, strength, and influence, once stripped from the nation, would return in abundance. And Jesus was emerging as just such a potential Messiah, at least in the eyes of the disciples and the fickle crowds. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. 
In the preceding seven plus chapters, Jesus has healed the sick, the leper, the paralyzed, a man with a deformed hand, raised the dead, healed the woman with a a hemorrhage of 12 years, uh, a Gentile woman's daughter, Uh, healed the deaf and the blind. Jesus has cast out demons from people. He's fed 5,000 plus on one occasion and another group of a crowd of 4,000 plus on another. He's walked on water and calmed the storms of the Sea of Galilee. And for Peter, he is 100% sold that when Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? In Mark chapter 8, 29, Peter replies, You are the Messiah. So let's continue to read from Mark 8.31. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you've got a different translation, I'm sure you'll be able to follow along just fine. Mark 8.31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, and three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him saying for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Previously, Jesus had hinted at and made allusions to the conflict between he he and many in the religious establishment. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we have the Pharisees and the supporters of Herod plotting how to kill Jesus. But in all of this, there was an expectation that the religious establishment might land a glancing blow that Jesus would at best deflect or at worst shake off. But Jesus would beat them and restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and the worship of Yahweh God and his people. That Jesus would never taste death. For the Messiah to die was a nonsense. This plan runs counter to everything and contradicted what they were conditioned to expect. Now Jesus openly, plainly expresses this view and the disciples' jaws collectively drop. As they're walking along near Caesarea Philippi with the disciples close by and the crowds gathering as a welcoming group about their arrival, Peter saw the need to nip this conversation in the bud. Peter takes Jesus off to one side and reprimands Jesus, his Messiah. That sort of talk has no place for the Messiah, their Messiah. Jesus turns around and looks at his disciples. I wonder what Jesus saw when he looked into their faces of the disciples, as he heard the words of Peter, as they heard Peter's reprimand. Some may say that Jesus was angry with Peter. After all, Jesus was pretty harsh calling Peter Satan, the accuser. 
But I wonder if there's not more to this picture. That as Jesus looks deep into the faces of the disciples, he sees fear and sadness and the desperate longing from those that were closest to him to not leave them alone. A collective cry of love for Jesus and a plea not to allow this to happen. No, Jesus, no. You can't. You won't leave us. You can't die. I wonder if it was not the case that in Peter's reprimand, Satan uses the disciples' love for their master as a siren song to take another path other than the cross. After all, you can't see, can't you see that it would break them if you were to die? You can't do this to them. And Jesus just, just for a fleeting moment, is once again tempted not to follow God's path. Get away from me, Satan, he said. Pity you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus reprimands Peter's actions, but he doesn't reject Peter. Jesus can differentiate between Peter's well-meaning intentions and being used and being used by Satan to try and derail Jesus' mission. And Jesus overcomes the temptation and then transforms it into a teaching opportunity. Mark's account continues in verse 34. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. It's suggested that as Mark pens this gospel in the 50s or maybe the 60s, when the persecution of the Christians increased within the Roman Empire, and so it's not surprising then that, that Mark slows the pace of this gospel down at this point to affirm and to reassure the reader of the importance of remaining faithful to Jesus, even when times get tough. If you're serious about following uh, about this following stuff, um, if you're serious about this, following stuff, if you're going to bind yourself to Jesus, then to be my follower, Jesus calls for you to do three things. You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. To give up your own way. Following Jesus is not a part-time volunteer work that you do as extracurricular activity. As Garland puts it, every day we must open up 
to be open up to God's initiatives and control. Self-denial takes shape in many ways. For some, it may mean leaving a job or a family, as the disciples have done and many have after. For the proud, it means renouncing the desire for status and honour. For the greedy, it means renouncing an appetite for the stuff and accumulating of stuff. For the complacent, we'll have to renounce a love of ease. For the faint-hearted, they will have to abandon the craving for security. And for the angry, they'll have to reject the desire for revenge. Take up your cross. It can seem so foreign to us in Australia um, what this whole concept of capital punishment is all about. Ryan, uh, Ronald Ryan was the last person to be executed in Australia at Pentridge Prison, less than five kilometres up the road from here, in 1967. Western Australia was the last state to abolish capital punishment in 1984. So while we adorn crosses as jewellery and hang them on the walls, we would think it's a tad disturbing to do the same with a noose or a guillotine or an electric chair. The disciples would have been confronted with the scene of someone hanging on the cross. It suggested that in the Roman Empire, they perfected crucifixion and executed more than 100,000 to 150,000 men and women naked on crosses across the empire. With the Roman Empire, in one, on one occasion, um, executing 6,000 Roman prisoners of war um, that were crucified along the Appian Way in Italy in around 71 AD. It suggested that they might have crucified all 6,000 of them in one day. If nails were used, they were often reused for the next execution. The most preserved person crucified by the Roman Empire in the 3rd or 4th centuries was discovered in England in as recent as 2017. Crucifixion was used by the Romans for over 500 years and they became experts at it. And it was um, used until it was abolished by Constantine I around the 4th century AD. Taking up your cross is more than a hymn to be sung, but it's a lifestyle to be lived. Jesus calls for something more in his followers and while they may have not realised it at the time, most of those disciples lived and died as followers of Jesus in this way. According to Christian tradition, Peter was crucified, Andrew crucified, James beheaded, um, John was sentenced to be boiled in oil but was banished to Patmos and was the only apostle to escape violent death. Philip, crucified. Bartholomew, cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas, thrust through with a spear. Matthew, axed to death with a halbeard. James, beaten, stoned and then clubbed to death. Thaddeus, crucified. Simon, crucified. 
And while in the West it is rare today to die in, for your faith, Mary and I would uh, regularly drive past the Staines Memorial College in Ipswich in Queensland, named after the Staines family. Graham Staines and his sons, Philip and Timothy, were killed in 1999 as they served God in the poor and rural areas of India. Like many of them before, the Staines family extended God's mercy to poor communities um, affected by leprosy. Rather than leaving, uh, Gladys and her uh, daughter Esther uh, stayed. With forgiveness for the killers, Gladys stated, I cannot leave those people who love and trust us. I have high regard for the people of India and their tolerance. Taking up your cross is a mark of identification with Jesus, even in the face of opposition and slander and abuse. It is being prepared to follow Jesus without turning back, even when peer pressure is great, even when you feel alone, even when you refuse to turn back and the cost is high, even when it costs you all that you have, you love Jesus more. Did the disciples get it right from the start? Of course not. They fled, they denied Jesus, but once those disciples experienced the risen Jesus, it changed how they lived and for whom they lived. It's not about arrogance or belligerence. Inviting opposition from people in the community is just plain stupid. Peter reminds us that later in life he puts it like this in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 18. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about, the hope as a belie- about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see the good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. This is not some call by Jesus to follow his Facebook profile or Twitter account. This is about choice. Not so much about what would Jesus do. Ironically, one of the most stolen wristbands from Kurong bookshops in the early 2000s. But what would Jesus have me do? And how can I follow Jesus? Example on how to live life well. We do this by getting to know Jesus well, by spending time with Jesus, reading God's word in the Bible and spending regular time with others who also love Jesus and follow him, by also engaging with those for whom Jesus loves and died and rose again and inviting them 
into his kingdom. Jesus' first followers lived this out. And they encouraged others to follow Jesus. And they taught others uh, about Jesus and discipled them. And they, in turn, did the same over the last 2,000 years. Paul was right when he wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who experience the fullness of following Jesus, celebrate because they realise that Jesus is the lost sock in the cosmic laundry mat that John Casimir said we would not find. According to various research around the world, those who have a deep and abiding lived out faith in God um, and are connected with their faith community, on average, get sick less, recover faster, live longer. Glad Graham 104 is a testament to that. Experience lower rates of mental health, are better at taking their medication, have higher hope and optimism, are less lonely, experience enhanced social relationships and overall have a higher quality of life. It's interesting when they did those comparisons against income and education, they had surprisingly little impact on the same things. That in giving up your own way of living, taking up your cross and following Jesus, you can truly live life well. And in so you can not only have the bird in the hand, but also look forward to having the two in the bush. That Jesus offers us the best way to live life now, today, and with eternal life with him in the kingdom that is to come when Jesus returns. Mark chapter 8, verses 35 and 36 says, And if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus' way and the way of the cross seems crazy to those fighting over the scraps of this life. But to those who look beyond those who recognise that in giving up your life to Jesus, you get so much more in return. But you have to open up your hand and release your grip to receive what Jesus offers you. Following Jesus is so much more than a third grade trophy gathering dust. It is the greatest calling on a person's life and shapes today and carries with it treasure into eternity. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would continue, Holy Spirit, to, to outwork the implications of following you in our day-to-day -day life that you would guide, you would direct, you would encourage, you would challenge and that you would help us, motivate us, call us to a deeper relationship and a deeper sense 
of following you. Amen. You know, over the years, we have had thousands of long-term job seekers doing work experience at Northern Community Care Works. When I did their inductions, um, I would encourage them to consider what sort of a reference would you, would you like us to be able to give you in the future when you wrapped up your time with us and commit yourselves accordingly. If you were to write your eulogy, what would be the most important thing for which you would want to be remembered? Where does Jesus fit into your picture? What are you struggling with letting go of, giving up? And is there a cross that you are carrying that we can prayerfully support you in? I encourage you to take those response cards out and reflect on those questions. And if one of those stands out or if a couple stand out, then use this time to respond to the things that God is saying to you today. For those at home, there's a chat function. For those listening later, you can send us a text message or an email as well. But let's take this time to respond to the things that God's saying to us today. 